0: Now, today we're going to finish <coughs> our third section of the book of Romans. You remember when we started Romans, I I, uh, <coughs> I broke it down into into four sections because I, I want you to learn this book. We have taken uh, a very long time to go through the book of Romans. Uh, I didn't want to teach it from a topical aspect. I wanted to teach it almost from a verse-by-verse, verse. sometimes, if you noticed, word-by-word, word. because you have to get down <coughs> in your life at some point the book of Romans, if you're ever going to put all this stuff together. And we're going to talk today probably about one of the greatest aspects of, of, of the Bible that the whole Bible is built on. We've touched on this in uh, in Basic Bibles, we've covered it in Institute, we've talked about it on Thursday night, uh, but we're going to come at it from the angle of Romans chapter 11. And we're going to finish our third section today. And uh, of God dealing with the nation of Israel. And you remember that the third section is the prophetic session where He's talking about what's going to do in the future. Now you've seen by now, as I've already said many, many times, that the book of Romans is an incredible book. And in particular, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, uh, we have taken that section and really painstakingly laid it out, every aspect uh, dealing with the future aspect of Israel, the historical aspect, and how God is going to restore uh, the nation of Israel. And this is very important because, uh, you know, when you go into the Bible and you study the Bible, you begin to find out some, some things. There's different laws that, uh, whether a man believes the Bible or he doesn't, there are certain laws that are in operation that all the time. And one of the laws is the aspect of, of God dealing with the nation of Israel. Uh, history books are filled with the nations and the people who failed to learn this great truth. The success of any nation, the success of any nation, the success of any Christian will basically be built around two basic concepts. And on these two concepts hinge its success or its failure, whether it does anything or it winds up on the ash heap. And obviously, the first one is the Word of God. The Word of God is likened to salt in the Bible. Salt is a preservative. And wherever a nation whether they claim to be a Christian nation or not, wherever a nation reverences the Word of God and puts it in a uh, supreme position as God's Word, there's automatic blessings that come along with that, and that nation gets, a, gets the blessings from God, uh, whether they're all saved or not, because uh, God looks at somebody or an individual who, uh, who reverences the Word of God and recognizes it for what it is. There's a, there's a preservation to that. Uh, You're going to find that uh, our country basically dumped the Bible around 1900. What you have seen historically from 1900 to where we're at today is an erosion of this country based on its lack of the Word of God, a picture of us decaying because (coughs) there's no preservative in our society anymore. When was it? 1960? (coughs) Well, let's go back even farther than that. Around 1900, they dumped the King James Bible. And officially in 1888 in Sarasota, Florida, the Southern Baptist Convention took the RSV of 1881 and that started the process. From that point on, we've seen a degeneration of everything in this country. We saw from that point on where everything began to collapse on itself. It was in 1960 that they banned prayer in school, where when I grew up and many of you older folks grew up, I can remember at Easter time and Christmas time, they actually invited a pastor in who got up in front of the whole school and talked about Christ's death on the cross, talked about the blood, talked about His birth, presented the plan of salvation. It was a different country back then. Our country has, has eroded. It has decayed because we've lost, we've lost the, the salt, the Word of God. That helps preserve any society. The second aspect will be the nation of Israel. The only thing... THE ONLY THING THAT IS HOLDING OUR NATION FROM GOING UNDER RIGHT NOW, THE ONLY THING. WE DON'T HAVE THE BIBLE ANYMORE, OR WE HAVE A FEW ISOLATED POCKETS WITH MEN AND WOMEN WHO BELIEVE IT LIKE US, BUT WE DON'T, ON A NATIONAL SCALE, OUR COUNTRY HAS DUMPED THE BIBLE, WE NO LONGER BELIEVE ANYTHING ABOUT GOD'S WORD, Uh, IT'S UPSIDE DOWN FROM ONE END TO THE OTHER. THE ONLY THING THAT IS HOLDING THIS COUNTRY HEAD ABOVE WATER FROM ITS submerging AND DROWNING IS OUR NATIONAL POLICY ON THE NATION OF ISRAEL. Because the second aspect that is the success or failure of any nation, any church, or any individual is your attitude toward the nation of Israel. This is why the book of Romans is such a crucial book. This is why he broke the book of Romans down the way that he did. And you're going to find that history is a graveyard of nations that has forgotten who the nation of Israel is. You're going to find that the graveyards are full of individuals who have never understood or rejected the aspect of God's people, the nation of Israel. And that's why it's absolutely so important to, to be able to put this into a Biblical context. Okay, now let's, let's go back and recap and see what we've, got, what we've learned so far, concerning the nation of Israel. First of all, we saw how God that separated them from the rest of the world. All the way back in your Bible in Genesis, God called out Abraham. When He calls out Abraham, He says, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. So what does He do? <coughs> He takes Abraham, who is living in the Ur of Chaldees. Today, and if you had a map, that's Babylon. That's in Iraq. And He says, I'm going to bring you from that land, and I'm going to take you to a land of promise. And so the first thing we see that God does is He finds a man. And He gets in that man somebody that He wants to make a great nation. And the Jews to this day call Abraham their father, the father of the nation of Israel. So He separates him out from the rest of the world. Then He he protects them. In the midst of their trials, you find that, that Abraham goes through trials, Isaac goes through trials, Jacob goes through trials, all Joseph goes through trials. In that early time when God is bringing about and getting ready and formulating the nation of Israel, God protects them. When God was dealing with Abraham, He gave him some promises. They're very important promises, they're promises that have to do with a nation. Their promises that God said, Abraham, out of your loins is going to come a great nation. Through your seed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to come a great nation. Not only a (coughs) a great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, but just as important to understand, a great nation. And we find that nation is the nation of Israel. They go down into Egypt. And they're down in Egypt for 430 years. And there during that time, God makes them into a great nation. He forms them. You can study it in your Bible around Genesis chapter uh, 45 or 48, someplace in there. The Bible says 66 people, 66 people go down into Egypt. 66. When they come out 430 years later, probably 2 or 3 million of them. God took that time and that adversity to bring them and make them into a strong nation. Now let me just, and I don't want to get off track here, but I can't miss some of these parallels. Now that's why, you see, God had to, God wanted to do something with them. And He wanted to make them a great nation. And He knew that when they got out there, that they were going to have to face a lot of rough opposition. Every nation on this planet was against them. Every king wanted to wipe them out. Anywhere they would go, once they come out of Egypt, they had to fight for their lives physically. And the moral of that, or the picture of that, is simply this. And it helps you understand why God does what He does sometimes. God sent them down into Egypt, because He knew that in Egypt, that 430 years, that God would would forge them and give them the strength, give them the endurance, give them them the, the desire to to be free, and to build them from 66 people into a great nation because of what they were going to have to face. And I say that to say this. This is why God puts us through some of the trials we go through. Oh, I know we go through trials but many times because we do dumb things. I understand that. But even in that, God wants to take those trials and turn them around and make you strong through them. I tell you all the time, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what stupid decisions you've made. The bottom line is, God only cares about where you're at now and have you learned from your mistakes. That's the only thing God's concerned of. And God, uh, God took them down and put them into Egypt. And for 430 years, they, they made bricks for Pharaoh. And, and, and God only knows what else that they did. Tremendous pressure. Tremendous persecution. Tremendous uh, time. But God used those sufferings. To make them a strong nation. And I say that to say this. Many times you and I will have to go through things. Many times they're because of our own fault. Many times they're not. The Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Many times your persecution simply comes because you want to do what's right. And the devil doesn't want you to do what's right. You've got to get the right mindset on why we go through struggles and sufferings. Many times, yes, it's to get us right with God. But even in that, the overall concept is that God wants to take us and make us stronger through the afflictions that we go through. That's what He did with the nation of Israel. And then He delivers them from the bondage of Egypt. Just like He'll deliver you and I from the things that we go through. He makes them a great nation. He doesn't make them a democracy. He doesn't even make them a republic. He doesn't make him some kind of totalitarian system. He doesn't even make him a monarchy. God's plan of government is is a theocracy. God's plan of government is that God is king. The closest thing that we have to it when we started our country, and our country couldn't become a theocracy, but the closest thing you can get to it is a republic. Because a republic is built on the principles of the Word of God and the things of that government that do not change are built on the unchanging things of the Bible. That's a republic. A democracy is where the majority rules. The majority doesn't rule in a republic. The republic is based on the principles of the unchanging Bible. And of course, that's why we started out a republic and wound up a democracy today. You've all said the pleasant allegiance to the flag. The Pledge of Allegiance of the Flag, I don't think they say it anymore in school, but the Pledge of Allegiance of the Flag was put together many, many years ago, and it's a pledge to the Republic, see, under God, indivisible. And, of course, that's exactly <coughs> what our Founding Fathers intended for it to do, just like the nation of Israel. And, <coughs> uh, of course, we know that the nation of Israel rejects all this, during the Old Testament, they turn to other gods. They, uh, God turns them over to the Gentile nations. We know this time period as the times of the Gentiles. It's a time in history that you can date, 606 B.C. Uh, we know that the next 400 years, there's silence from God. Where before God was giving them books through the prophets or books through Moses, now they get no books. Where in the Old Testament, God was speaking to them through the prophets, no more speaking through anybody. Where before God was, uh, uh, God was giving them revelations, no more revelations. For 400 and some years, the heavens are silent. And God speaks to nobody anywhere on this planet. And then out of the wilderness one day, out of the wilderness over there in the wilderness of Judea, comes a man in his name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He says, Behold the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <coughs> And John the Baptist, we know, is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He, born six months ahead of him, he, his ministry is six months before he shows up, and what he does is he proclaims to the nation of Israel that your Messiah has come. Now, this is all stuff that we know, but it helps sometimes to get a refresher course and to put it all into perspective. We know what happens. First, they kill John the Baptist, don't they? And then they take the Lord Jesus Christ, the one He heralded to Israel as the Messiah, and they killed Him. And then we know from our many, many studies that <coughs> we enter a period of time called the History of the Church. Again, 2,000 years where God kind of puts Israel on the back burner. And God, uh, God begins to <coughs> uh, reach out to the, uh, to, the, to the Gentiles and bring them uh, back uh, bring into the fold uh, and have them be saved. And then we know from our history, around 1918, 19, uh, <coughs> some 1900 in there, uh, someplace, we start the beginning of the Zionist movement. We see, and we studied it as we come through these three chapters, <coughs> how God began to reach out to gather His people back. For 2,000, 20, 2,400 years, they've been out of the loop. They've been everywhere in this world. But God made some, and here's the key, He made some promises to Abraham. And God always keeps His promises. So around 1900, somewhere in there, we have the beginning of what we know as the Zionist movement. And we see God begin to gather them back from all the nations. By the time we get to our own time period, 1948, we know that they become a nation. And now we know that the next great event, and that's where we're at today, we look at the the world around us and we can see everything, if you're paying attention, Everything in the world today is shaping up for the God to bring His people back and get this thing finalized with them, the restoration of the nation of Israel. We're right there. We're right on the spot. We're right there in time where everything is going to unfold right before your eyes. You know, and I know that people, you know, I talk to people all the time and they think that it's scary times. You're not sure what the economy is going to do, and honestly, it's scary when you lose your job. It's scary when when you you don't know uh, what's going to happen. People are talking about the government running all of our health care. Well, hello, I mean the government. Anything the government touches corrupts and falls to pieces. It's scary. It's scary unless you understand that these are the times we have to go through. This is it. When you read in the Bible that perilous times would come, did you think that meant that Worlds of Fun would shut down on the day you were going to go there? Is that what you thought it was? When you said you read in your Bible that you know perilous times are going to come, did you actually think that you go to work next week and the air conditioner breaks and, and you, 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 it's hot? Or you go to work and the computer's down and God forbid you got to think? No, the perilous times are where we're at. You ought to enjoy, somebody asked Mel Sabaka one time, great answer, great question. They asked Mel Sabaka one time, my father and the Lord, they asked him one time, they said, Mel, let me ask you a question. Are you enjoying your salvation or are you enduring your salvation? Mel looked back without even thinking and he said, you know what, I'm enduring, I'm enjoying my enduring. That's a great answer. You know what you ought to be doing today? If you know your Bible, you ought to be enjoying your enduring. You ought to realize that this is, what, this is where it's at. I mean, we are so soft as American Christians that the least little thing that gets into our comfort zone, you know, hey, this is where the rubber meets the road. These things has to happen. We're living in a time right before the rapture of the church in a time when everything is ready to fold up around us. And we're living in a time where you don't have to worry about the uncertainty. This is where, and this is why, for six years now, I've tried to drive into your head Bible principles. This is where you've got to learn more than just a verse in your Bible. 1 Peter 5, 8. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Okay? Up to this point in many Christians' lives, that's just been a verse. Cute little verse. Now it may become a reality of life. Can you take that verse and really apply it? My God shall supply all your need. See? Now we're going to see the reality of those things. And this is where, for Christians, the rubber meets the road. This is what you should have been preparing your whole life for as a child of God. What we're facing today. To get through it. And to learn how to not just endure, but enjoy your enduring. Well, we know that the rapture is going to take place any time now, and then we're going to go into the great tribulation period. And in that great tribulation, we know now that the nation of Israel, who God since 1900 has formulated the events and began to bring them back, is going to uh, put the uh, double-arm hammerlock on them and 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 bring them back to God as a nation. And then we're going to see the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ, and we're going to see the fulfillment of everything we've studied in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The restoration of the nation of Israel. God's people back in the fold. And today I want to read the last section of Romans chapter 11. And I want to look at yet another great (coughs) truth that we haven't really looked at yet. We've talked around it. We've made reference to it. But I want to talk to you today because I want you to understand this. And this is something you want to get in your Bible. And maybe you don't want to put it in your Bible directly today, but you want to write it down, get it down, or get the tape and go back over it because I want to talk to you today about the uh, salvation of the nation of Israel. I want to talk to you about how Israel gets saved. And it sounds simple, but it's one of the most complicated issues and most confusing issues that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible and in Christianity. So let's begin reading in Romans chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 25, and here's what he said. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away (coughs) ungodliness from Jacob. (coughs) For this is My covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, They are the beloved of the Father's sakes, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that He might have mercy upon all. O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! For, uh, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first <coughs> given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? <coughs> for of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, Father, <coughs> we thank You and praise You today for the Lord Jesus. Our Lord, we come to You today <coughs> putting a final note on these great three chapters. Lord, it's been good for me. There's so many things that I saw through here that I have never even seen before as I laid this out for (coughs) the people here, Father. And I'm sure that there's many here that have grown and learned through it (coughs) and are putting the book of Romans together in an understandable way, and that's our goal. So I pray today that You'll give us the wisdom. We pray, Father, that You'll help us to uh, open up the Scriptures. Holy Spirit of God, we know that a man can receive nothing lest it comes from God. (coughs) We ask You today to give us all that we need. And we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, as I said, I want to talk to you today about Israel's salvation. You know, salvation in the Old Testament versus salvation in the New Testament is one of the hardest concepts for people to grasp. Uh, Much of the confusion comes from the terminology we use. Uh, People think that in the Bible, every time you find the word saved, that it means to be saved like born again, you know, saved from your sin. That's not true. God uses the word saved a couple of different ways in the Bible. And if you're not up on the terminology of how it's used and putting it into the context, you can get really messed up. You know there's a group of people running around right now out there in the world (coughs) that believes based on what the Bible says. The Bible says over there in, uh, I think it's in Timothy, where it talks about a, a woman shall be saved in childbearing uh, if her and her husband, da 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 And there's an actual group of people there to talk, take that and says see that proof, if a woman dies in giving birth, she's saved. Okay? And yet, if you read the passage, that's not even remotely what it's talking about. There isn't salvation anywhere in that chapter. <clears throat> it's not talking about her being saved from her sins. If you read the context, it's talking about her being saved from being deceived. So the word "saved" when you find it in the Bible is not always used in the context of saved as you and I understand it. You got to look at the context, <clears throat> and it's a something you got to look at after you understand all of these aspects. So terminology is very important. Another reason that people don't uh, get the way things break down sometimes between the Old Testament and the New Testament, <clears throat> and I've told you this from day one, ever since we started studying our Bibles together, some six, over six years ago. I told you this fundamental, basic truth about God and the Bible. Here's the problem we have. And this is probably for many people, and I don't know why. I guess it's just because that's how they've been taught over the years. But this is a hard thing for many people to overcome. When I come to the Bible, when I read the Bible, when I study the Bible, when I try to get an understanding of the Bible, I never read the Bible from a Christian standpoint. I never do. I never study the Bible from a Christian standpoint. Because when you, re- when you understand the whole Bible, you understand that Christianity <clears throat> is just a very small aspect of the overall Bible. And what happens is that if you, uh, yeah, you can bring that up, absolutely. As you can tell, I'm having a little trouble this morning. <clears throat> I've quit smoking those big black cigars, but they still linger. Thank you. <laughs> Jimmy, that's warm, man. That's like drinking bath water. Isn't there nothing cold up there? Where'd you get this at? You don't, don't tell me where you got it. At. I don't want to know. I'll go get some Let it run a little bit. Yeah. Two things I can't stand. Cold coffee and warm water. Jimmy, when you bring it back five minutes in the timeout chair. <clears throat> you can't come, when you read the Bible, and you look at the Bible, when you approach the Bible, the mindset you want to have is not me as a 20th century Christian. You realize that a small portion of your Bible deals with New Testament Christianity? What I'm saying is this. you got to come to the Bible and view it from God's standpoint. Because what happens is this, and this happens all the time. When you start to come to the Bible and you start to view it from a Christian standpoint, then you read the things that you and I have as Christians into everything that you read in the Bible, and that's not true, because there's a lot more addressed in the Bible than just New Testament Christianity, and you've got to be able to, thank you, you've got to be able to look at the Bible wherever you're at, and not see it from my perspective, but see it from what God's perspective is. In other words, I don't care if it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, or wherever you're at, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, what is God doing here, Most Christians don't even understand or have a glimpse of the overall plan of God. You know, the Bible teaches that over there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and this is so foreign to most Christians today. When I was growing up, it was basic Bible 101. But we've come so far in that time, away from the Bible. You realize over in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the household of God, the family of God. Do you realize also that from Genesis to Revelation, there's seven members of that family of God, and God doesn't deal with any of them the same way? And the average Christian, when you talk about that, or the average pastor, they just look at you. They have no clue. Because God has broken down His Bible from His standpoint, not yours and mine. And when so when you begin to read the Bible from your Christian standpoint, I'll give you an example. For me, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm saved. The most important thing on my calendar is the day I got saved. That's the most important thing on my calendar. The most important thing to me as a Christian is the day I got saved, and right along with that is the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. See? Now, to me, that is the number one thing in my life that is important to me. You realize that that's not the number one thing that's important to God? Do you understand that? But because I'm in the church age and my salvation is number one in my life and the fact that he died for me is premier in my life, if I just look at the whole concept of the Bible from that standpoint, then I think, well, the number one day in God's life must have been the crucifixion. Do you actually believe that the number one day in God's life was a day that they, he put his son on the cross and they, they spit in his face and they whipped him and they, now it's the greatest day to me. But I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest day in the Bible to God is not the day His Son was rejected by men. The greatest day with God is the day His Son sits down on the throne in Jerusalem and is crowned King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is such a valuable day to God. He named it the day of the Lord or that day over 1,000 times in the Old Testament. See? See the difference? The difference is approaching it from my standpoint. And boy, this is the greatest day for me. So therefore, it must be the greatest day to God. And then stepping back and saying, well, that is the greatest day to me. But the greatest day to God is not when his son was rejected, but when his son is received. And it's things like that that people get into. They don't understand. uh, They don't understand. Now, here's, look at verse 34. Here's a bombshell. It says, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Now, that's the key. How do you and I know what the mind of God is? And that's really what we got to get to. What I'm talking to you about this morning, why there's so much misunderstanding about the salvation of the nation of Israel and people looking at it just like you and I were saved, is the fact that we don't understand, we don't understand the mind of the Lord. And yet the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it talks about that we have the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the mind of Christ is the Bible. And when you let this mind here be in you here, then you start looking at things not from a Christian standpoint, but from God's standpoint. So when I when I want to understand something, when I want to look at something, I don't, I don't put my personal opinion in it. I don't look at it from the aspect, well, you know, the greatest day on God's calendar must be salvation because that's the day I got saved. No, that's the greatest day to me, but it's not the greatest day to Him. And that's exactly what most people do. It verse says, who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? We actually believe that we can be God's counselor. We actually live our lives telling God what the book means instead of getting God's mind and let the book tell us what it means. And that's exactly the problem we get into. Now let's lay this thing out and get Israel's salvation in a biblical context. Look at verse 25. A couple of things here. "For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. All right, there's three or four things here we want to get defined, and you want to put them in your Bible along this verse. The first thing we want to look at, it says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Seven times in your Bible, in the New Testament, you are told there's something that you and I as the child of God should not be ignorant of. Now, if we believe the Bible is the book of God, written by God, and everything in it there is by God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and every word in there is important, every phrase is important, and there's nothing in there by accident, then there's some value to the fact that He told us that there's seven things that we're not to be ignorant of. And yet, when you lay those seven things out, they are, they are the exactly the seven things that the average Christian doesn't know anything about, and yet we're told not to be ignorant of them. Second thing is, he says, ignorant of this mystery. And most of you know this, uh, that there are seven mysteries in the Bible. Those seven mysteries are given to the church. They're things that you and I should understand that really begin to unlock the Bible for us. We went through it. It's on our website. Uh, You can get the tapes on it. We've done it many, many, many times. The next thing he talks about is Israel's temporary blindness. He says blindness in part has happened to Israel. And of course, that simply means that, uh, we've talked about this before, that Israel as a nation, uh, the majority of them cannot see Christ. But it says blindness in part, because there are some Jews that you're going to be able to win to Christ, and you're going to be able to show them uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and and help them get to a point where they trust Christ as their own personal Savior. So he says blindness in part. Blindness in part. We also know that that blindness in part has to do with the great concept that we studied a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month or so ago, is the fact that Israel is always going to have a remnant. And then he says this, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now what does that mean? The fullness of the Gentiles in your Bible simply always refers to the last Gentile that's going to get saved. I don't know who he is or she is, but I can tell you this, somewhere in the world out there, and this is all according to God's mindset, I have no idea how he worked it all out, but I can tell you this. Somewhere out there in the world, male or female, America, China, Africa, I don't know where, there's a last Gentile that's going to get saved. And in God's mind, it's over. I don't know how God does it. I don't know if God's standing up there with a stopwatch and says, you got 20 more minutes, and at the end of 20 minutes, time's out, and we're going out of here. I don't know how He does it. But the fullness of the Gentile simply means that there comes a time in God's mind when the Gentiles that are going to get saved in the church age is now done with. And at that moment, triggers the rapture of the church. Now, if that isn't any motivation for soul winning, I don't know what is. You might be the one who wins that last person to Christ that blows this whole thing out of here. But somebody out there is going to be the last Gentile to get saved, and the Bible says, For I would not, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you be wise in your own conceits. <clears throat> the blindness in part has happened to Israel UNTIL the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, look at, the, look, at, look at verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. See that thing? Then the rapture of the church, triggered by the last fullness of the Gentiles, is what triggers this thing for Israel to be saved. And I want to talk to you about that concept. And the, the last aspect of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is Israel's salvation and getting a better understanding of it. Now, to grasp this great truth, we've to go back and build some. Ba- remember again some basic Bible principles because fundamental basics are the key to understanding major concepts in the Bible. Now, the first thing I want you to remember is this, and we've talked about this before. In the Old Testament, remember now, in the Old Testament, God dealing with nations. In the New Testament, God dealing with a church. In the Old Testament, God dealing with a literal, visible nation in a literal, visible kingdom. We know it as the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, God is not dealing with a nation. He's dealing with a body of believers. And it's not physical. It's spiritual. And we know now from our past studies many, many times that this is the kingdom of God. And yet, if you'd go to 99.999% of the churches today or talk to 99.99% of the Christians and ask them what the difference between the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God is, they would tell you they're the same. And of course, we know now from our studying the Bible, getting God's mind and letting the Bible tell us instead of us telling it, we know now that that's not true. The Kingdom of Heaven will always represent the nation of Israel in a literal, physical sense. The Kingdom of God will always represent the Church in a spiritual sense. And that's the basic fundamental we've got to remember here. And then we've got to add to that this. I showed you this last week that in Exodus chapter 4, Israel as a nation, as a nation now. Israel as a nation is called God's Son. As a nation. 20 billion people are called collectively God's Son. That's Israel. You want to remember that you and I, who are in the spiritual kingdom today, We're called sons individually. If you're here this morning and you're saved, you'll never find in the Bible where God ever talks about the whole body of believers being God's son. We are God's son on an individual basis. Do you know why that is? Because our kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Our kingdom, the Bible says in in Romans chapter uh, uh, 14, verse 17, it's, it's within you and me. Our kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a kingdom that is inside you, that you're born into, and God deals with you and me as an individual. Do you ever wonder why we talked about this Thursday night? Remember I told you we were going to get here on Sunday? We talked about this on Thursday night. Do you ever notice why God just talks to certain people in the Old Testament? I mean, when you got Moses, you know there's no record of anywhere in the Bible where God's going down and conversing with anybody other than Moses? Do you know why that is? Because in the Old Testament like that, God didn't have individual relationships with people like that. You realize that you can get a hold of God and talk to God anytime you want, 24-7. And you can just go on and on and on and on. He'll listen to you all day long. You know that He'll speak to you individually. You can have a relationship with Him. You can walk along life's road together. You realize that in the Old Testament, they didn't have that kind of relationship. That's why God only speaks through one man at a time. Moses was the designator mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament. You know what God did? God came down and told him what to do. He went out and told the people what to do. But God didn't come down to all those Jews down there and talk to you. Did you talk to God this morning? He talked back to you? Well, I know, but I mean, he talked, you have a conversation with him? Yeah, nobody in the Old Testament could do that. Nobody, all day long. Yeah, good point, all day long. Nobody in the Old Testament could do that. That's why God took Moses up on the mountain, remember? And He gave him the Ten Commandments. And when He gave him the Ten Commandments, He also gave him the dimensions of the tabernacle. He gave him everything he was supposed to do. And then Moses comes down and tells all the people. Moses is the man that speaks for God. After Moses was gone, it was Joshua. And then once Joshua gets him into the land, and they get their kings on the throne, you know what God does? God sends them prophets. And those prophets come down, and I told you this Thursday night. Every time a man of God and a prophet in the Old Testament says something, you know what he says? Before he says whatever he's got to say, he simply says this, Thus saith the Lord. Every time, every time before he says the message, gives them what God told, he says, Thus saith the Lord. You know why he does that? Because he was God's mouthpiece. God didn't come down uh, and, and, and talk to them individually like you. They didn't have the Holy Spirit of God and lead and guide them like you do. God gave them men, and those men God spoke to went out and told everybody what to do. Many times, they didn't like what they said, but that's how He did it. That's how He did it. Why? Because we're dealing with a nation of Israel, and God is not dealing with a nation of Israel individually. He's dealing with them in a nation, a national sense, a corporate sense. And as a nation, they are God's child, God's son. You and me, everybody here this morning is Savior, God's child. You can have your own relationship with God. You can, do, you can learn from the Bible yourself. You don't need me as a mouthpiece to tell you what God wants you to do. Now, God put a local church together, and he gave us, and he told us, forsake not the selling of the cells together, as the manner of some is, and he put the structure of the church with a pastor to lead people and to help people and to preach to people and to motivate people. But at the end of the day, my job is simply to help you find the God who is inside you this morning to bring you up to the place where you can be your own man or your own woman when it comes to the Bible. You think I want you 20 years from today to still be hobnobbing around trying to struggle through life? You think 15 years from today I want you still as spiritually immature as as maybe you are as a young Christian today? No. I want you to be everything that God wants. That's my job. My my, My job is not like Moses. In one sense. Moses always told the people what to do. The people couldn't do one thing without Moses saying it. And if Moses said it was okay, it was okay, and if Moses said not to do it, and you went ahead and did it, you got whacked. I don't have that. Sometimes I'd like to have that, but I don't have that. that. That's not my job. My job is to teach you the Bible, lay out the options, show you the principles, show you the alternatives of a life with God versus a life without God, show you the alternative of making good choices and bad choices. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's between you and God. Wasn't that way in the Old Testament. Between them and Moses. That's why Moses could go in and say, God, God say, Moses, what's your problem? He says, oh, those guys over there just giving me all kinds of fit. God said, you want me to kill them? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, kill them. Kill their mothers while you're at it too, would you, Lord? (laughs) And their fathers. And if they got anybody out there, wipe them all out. You know what? God would do it. On Moses say so. I don't have that kind of power. I don't want that kind of power. If I was honest and I asked God to kill anybody for their wickedness, it would be me, not you. <laughs> but I'm not going to be down on so I'll ask them to kill you. <laughs> but you see how it begins to work? That's the difference between the relationship of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It went through a man, Moses. I don't tell you, I don't ever want to tell you what to think. My job is to just to teach you to think for yourself. Read the scriptures. But at the end of the day, you've got to make up your own decision of what you're going to do. I can show you the, the, the results of, of, of the life you're going or the decisions you make or the situation you're in. And I can say, this is, what, this is your options, and here's what it is, and if you stay here, it's going to be this, and if you do this, here's what you've got to do. But at the end of the day, you're the one who's got to decide what you're going to do. That's not the Old Testament way. It was under the law. It was, do it this way, or you're in trouble. And of course, that's, that's the difference between the two. God's salvation to the nation of Israel was on a national scale. God's salvation to you and me in the church age is on an individual scale. Now, I've got to clarify this, because I know this is going to be a confusing point, and I'm trying to take a very hard deal today and make it very easy for you to grasp, because I know there's all levels of Christians here, and I, I try to be very understanding and try to lay it out. So I've got to make this, this clear, so you get it in the right context. In the Old Testament, all the way up through the start of the church age, God is dealing with the nation of Israel as a corporate nation. And in the Old Testament, up to the start of the church age, He's dealing with them not as individuals, but He is as a nation. Those individuals, they want to get God's righteousness. They've got to do what the national law of their nation says, and then God allows them into that nation, and then they get into that nation, and they become part of God's chosen people in that nation. Now, in the Old Testament, if a Gentile wanted to find righteousness with God, he had to become a Jew. See? He had the greatest example in your Bible is Ruth. Remember the little book of Ruth? Had a little baby, called him Baby Ruth. Remember that? Well, you, you come to the place where Ruth was a Moabite, enemy of God. And you know, the great story about Ruth and Boaz is the picture of Christ and all that. And it's an incredible deal. Now, what does she say? What does she say? She's a Moabitess. She's an enemy of God. They're God's enemy. But she says to Naomi, you know what? No, I'm not leaving you. Your your God's going to become my God. Your ways are going to become my ways. Your people are going to become my people. What did she do? She quit being a Moabitess, and she became a Jew. And when she did that, she got into a nation. And they accepted her. Now, that runs from the Old Testament all the way up to Um, the new test start of the church. At the church now, which runs about 2,000 years, we're living in it now, it's just the opposite. If a Jew now wants to get God's righteousness, he's got to become a Christian. He can't stay a Jew. I don't want to give the impression that what I'm talking about here, that a Jew can, any Orthodox Jew, just go on practicing Judaism and find Christ. No, you can't do that the situation has changed now in the old testament from here to here you had to do it if you want if you were a gentile and you wanted to get in you had to become a jew once the church age starts to the rapture of the church if you're a jew you're now in the kingdom of god you've got to become a christian see see how it works now once the rapture takes place and god goes back to dealing with the nation of israel if you're a gentile and you want to get in again you got to become a jew again see how it works in other words, it's all based on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is to Israel. And so if you're a Gentile and you want to get in when that kingdom is in force, you've got to become a Jew. Once that kingdom is gone and we're now in the spiritual kingdom, church age, kingdom of God, then if a Jew wants to get in, or anybody wants to get in, they've got to get in by trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. But you know what the difference is? In the Old Testament, they got into a nation. In the New Testament right now, we get into a body. See? I'm not in a literal body i'm in a spiritual body you see you look at me and this flesh is really not what's saved about me i look at you and what i see is not really saved the real and this ain't the real me the real me's in here looking at you through these two holes up here see the real me is a spiritual person when i got saved what changed about me wasn't this this is physical what changed about me was on the inside that's spiritual in the old testament Nothing changed about them. Because they weren't getting into a body. They're getting into a literal nation. You see how that thing works? And in the Old Testament, from the beginning of Israel up to the church, then that was the kingdom of heaven. And they had to get in a nation. Once God starts at a church and he brings that spiritual kingdom in, then we got to get into a body, the body of Christ. Once the rapture takes place and God turns his attention to the nation of Israel, then they got to come back and they got to get into a nation again. And that is what deals with Israel's salvation. Israel is saved as a nation. You and I are saved as individuals. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to develop that as we come down through. I mean, there's some notable differences. If you just know anything about the Bible at all, here's what you're struck with. We talk about when we die and spend an eternity with Christ in heaven. You know the Jews never go to heaven? You can't find one verse that Old Testament talked about them going to heaven. You know why? Their domain is on earth. You get a glorified body. They never do. They have to partake of the tree of life in Revelation chapter 22 verse 14. You and I don't. They have to endure to the end to be saved in the tribulation. You and I don't. See, there's a difference. Even in the Old Testament, right when they died and you die in the New Testament, they didn't even go to the same place because nothing's the same. The problem is when we don't get God's perspective on it. Let me show you, let me show you one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18. This is a great verse. And the reason why there's so much confusion on this is because of the terminology, and people don't see it in the right perspective. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24. And along with this verse, you can add Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 3, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, and Hebrews chapter 8. I mean, they're all through there. Now look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24. But when the righteous... Watch it now. Every word. Hang on every word. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness. Now here's a man that was righteous, but he turns away from his righteousness. What does he do? And committeth iniquity. And doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass, that he hath trespassed, and in his sin, that he has sinned, in them shall he die. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but dying in your sins is going to hell. I mean, I'd like to flower it up, put a nice Hawaiian shirt on it, and walk it out the door, but it won't work. It won't work. You die in your sin. Now, here's a man who was righteous. And then he turned from that righteousness and went after iniquity. And the Bible says that when he dies, God does not remember anything good that he did. Now, is that you? It certainly isn't me. is isn't me at all. Now, the great example of this in the Bible is the man Saul. Now, here's a man that was a king. He wasn't God's choice to be king, but God allowed him to be king because that's what the people wanted. You realize that Saul uh, was a king and Saul was a prophet. You realize that God's spirit worked through Saul at times? And then what happened to Saul? Here's a classic example. What happened to Saul was that he got in iniquity. And he started going after other gods and doing a lot of wicked things. And you know what God, the Bible, tells you? The Bible tells you very clearly that when he got into that mode, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. And what, somebody tell me what the next part says. A what? Anybody? An evil spirit came unto him. Now, can that happen to you? Could God's Spirit leave you because you don't do right, and then you get a wicked spirit from the devil? No! No! But it happened to Saul. It could happen to anybody in the Old Testament. You know why? Because their sins were not covered by the blood like you and me. They had to go bring offerings of bulls and goats, which the Bible tells you could never pay for sin. His sins wasn't paid for. He's in an Old Testament scenario where he's dealing with God based on what the law tells him to do. And Ezekiel chapter 18 says, when he does what it says... He's righteous. When he doesn't do what he says, you know what happens? Look it up for yourself in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, because you know what it says? It says that not only did God take his kingdom from Saul, but it tells you in no uncertain terms, clearly and plainly, that God also took his mercy from Saul. Can you go to heaven without God's mercy? Does anybody here remotely think that you can? You cannot. And here's examples of what he's talking about. Now, I, I, I've been in this business for a long time. And I I know, I know, uh, in an Old Testament, a man got God's righteousness by doing and believing by faith, through grace, what God told him to do, based on the Old Testament law and his faith in it. But the truth of the matter is this. The Holy Spirit of God did not indwell him. He was not spiritually circumcised. He was not part of the body of Christ. He'll never be part of the church. He'll never get a glorified body. When he died, he couldn't go to heaven. The Holy Spirit of God could come and go it freely. And like I said, there was no indwelling Holy Spirit. There was no sealing of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, I mean, uh, all of those things made the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And somebody says, well, Bob teaches that a man in the Old Testament can lose his salvation. No, I'm saying a man in the Old Testament does not have your salvation. That's what I'm saying. And the fundamental difference is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The fundamental difference is God dealing with Israel as a son, as a nation. And God dealing with you and me as His son through a spiritual church. That's the difference. That's the difference. Somebody, And, and when you don't get the right mindset, when you don't see this thing from God's standpoint. I had a person tell me one time years ago, and you know, for everybody, for everybody that's whacked out on the Bible, and you don't teach it right, Someplace there's a simple little thing that just destroys them. I was talking to a Calvinist last week. A couple weeks ago. And he came come over to my house. Nice guy. And he was going to talk about why we didn't believe in Calvinism. He saw some of the books back there. He wanted to know why we didn't believe in Calvinism. And I was kind. And I, and I didn't want to get into the big Bailey who over the thing. And I just said, well, I said, I said, let me ask you a question. Let me explain to me uh, let me see if I got this straight. You're saying that God, somewhere in the distant past, before Genesis 1, 1, looked at everybody we'll say in this room, and they said, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You know I am going to send you to hell, didn't you, huh? Because you always get mad when I send you to hell. What are you going to say? You're going to let me choose you to go to hell? No. Tell me, no. No. Louder. No. No, real loud, like you're yelling at Jimmy. No. All right, I ain't, you ain't going down. He's going down instead of you. No, we'll send him. I don't like him anyhow. We're going to send him. No, no. You, know, you see, that's what he thought. He told me, and he believes that somewhere before Genesis one one, God looked out at everybody that was going to be born and said, some of you're going to heaven, some of you're going to hell. And I said, now, is that what you're saying? He says, yes. I said, now, in that decision, you're telling me that once God made that choice, that that choice is irreversible. In other words. If you're one of the ones that are going to heaven, you're going no matter what you do. And if you're one of the ones that are going to hell, you're going to hell no matter what. There's nothing you can do to change that. Is that correct? And he says that's correct. And so I said, so I get straight in your mind now. You're saying that somewhere back in a distant past, God chose everybody to go to heaven or hell. And when he chose them, that fixed it for all eternity. And there's nothing that they can do. He said, that's exactly right. I said, okay, I got it now. Let me ask you a question. Let's take a woman has a baby. That baby gets born, and six months later, that baby dies. Where does it go? He, that was his exact word. He said, well, that baby goes to heaven. I said, even if he's not one of the chosen ones? You see, the problem you get into as a Calvinist if you take the position that God chose back here, then you got to stand there and tell that mother, that little white casket, that there's a good chance that baby ain't going to heaven. You see, Romans, oh, hey, under the blood, what is, that's what he tried to say. He said, well, they're under the blood. Whoa, how can it be under the blood now if you were chosen eternally back there? You see the problem you get into? Oh, yeah, a Calvinist likes to think that grown ups are all going to be chosen to go to heaven or hell, but boy, they have a tough time thinking that a baby being born wouldn't just go to heaven and of course that baby does go to heaven but from Calvin's standpoint he was chosen back there and he may be one of the ones that did not get chosen so you got to say to that mom and that dad at that funeral well I hope they were one of the chosen ones flip the coin you got 50 50 chance that little baby might be in hell you want to say that to a grieving parent when the Bible clearly teaches that that baby is under the blood and he's in heaven? But you can't make him under the blood as a baby if God already chose him before the foundation of the world to be lost. If he was chosen to be lost back there, then he's still lost as a baby. You see, you see where I'm going with this? There's always somewhere this screws him up. I had a guy say one time and the same thing. And that's the difference between looking at it from Calvin's standpoint than God's standpoint. Guy said one time, well, the people in the Old Testament, you know, uh, their salvation is just like ours. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, back in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. And we stand on this side of the cross and look back to the cross. I said, is that how it worked?" He said, yeah, that's how it worked. They look forward to the cross. We look back. And I said, well, if that's the case, then how come they missed him when he came the first time? If you were looking for somebody, how do you miss him when he shows up? Well, they were looking forward to the cross. Really? Then why did they crucify him if that's what they were looking for? You can't find one verse anywhere in that Bible in the Old Testament that they said that Jew... You know why the Jews crucified Christ? Because they were looking for a king in a city. The Bible says Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They weren't looking for a cross. They weren't looking for a savior. They are looking for a king. But when you take your mindset as a Christian and think, well, I look back to the cross, so therefore, oh, Christianity, they must look forward to the cross. See the mess you get in? I had a guy tell me one time in Genesis chapter 6, I said, the sons of God were fallen angels. He said, no, 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 no. He says, that's not not fallen angels. The the, the sons of God back there, he says, you find sons of God all through the Bible. In the New Testament, sons of God are Christians. He said, what you got back there, he says, that's 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 a godly line of Seth. In other words, you got saved people, the sons of God, marrying unsaved women. And i said well let me ask you a question how does that produce a race of giants i got people in my church marry unsaved people all the time and they got midgets they don't get any giants how does that work and i said so it was the godly line of seth and i threw in my bible i said trace for me i can trace for you the line of adam the line of christ the line of everybody in there trace for me the godly line of seth would you please And i said so they were they were they were saved people Yes. Marrying unsaved women? Yes. Now here comes the killer. How come he didn't get on the ark? If You got all these saved sons of God running around here. Did all of them marry unsaved women? How come when the ark came down to it, only eight people got on? You know why? Because they weren't sons of God like you and me. That's why. God always has a monkey ritual. Don't fit any nut in this world. And that's how you deal with those things. The theme of the Bible is not salvation. The theme of the Bible is a kingdom. You're looking at it, I'm looking at it from a Christian standpoint, and I say, well, theme of the Bible has to be salvation because I'm saved! No, the king of the theme of the Bible is the day God's Son, and I told you already, sits down in Jerusalem and is crowned King of kings and the Lord of lords. Over 1,100 times in your Old Testament reference to as the Day of the Lord. That's the problem people get into. That's the problem people get into. When I grew up back there and was being taught the Bible, I was taught that to be an expert in everything in the Bible. We don't have anybody. We got experts in subjects. We got people who are get on the radio and they're experts in family. We got people who get on the radio, they're experts in prophecy. We got people who get on and they go around the churches and they're experts on the government and the constitution. We got people that flow around to churches and they're experts on the spiritual gifts. You got people that go around and they're experts on husband and wife relationships. Everybody's got their little focus deal. And I'm not saying that's bad and I'm not saying that's not important, but I'm saying as a child of God, you ought to be an expert in everything in the Bible. Not just one section of it. Because you can't take one section without tying into all the other sections. And if you try to do that, you're going to miss something. Now, now I want to show you some verses on Israel's salvation here. And understanding how this thing works. Now, here is the key to understanding all of this is just two verses. And one word. And it's real easy. It's the word regeneration. Now do you realize that you only find that word twice in your Bible? And if you don't have it marked in there, you need to get it marked at some point. Turn over to Titus chapter 3 verse 5 first of all. And let's look at the first time you find it. Titus Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to His mercy, He has saved us by washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Spirit of God. All right? Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it's talking about you and me in the church age, individuals. That's how you got saved. You and I didn't get saved by works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, He saved us by washing of regeneration. You go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that washing of the regeneration is the washing of the Word of God. And that's how you and I got regenerated. We got regenerated. Regenerated uh, by the Holy Spirit of God. Alright? Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Here's the second time you find it. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all, and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, uh, verily uh, I say unto, unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, here it comes, in the re- generation. With the washing of regeneration and renewing it. No, I thought what it says. In the, re- in, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's Israel, see? You only find regeneration two times in the Bible. One deals with you and me as individuals. The other deals with the nation of Israel as a corporate nation at the second coming of Christ. Notice it says regeneration. Regeneration. You know why it's regeneration? Because you and I had it in Adam, and we lost it in Adam, and when we got generated again, it was regeneration. You know why it says regeneration for Israel? It says regeneration because Israel had it under David and Solomon, and then they lost it, and they're going to get it back. Let me ask you a question. What is the big difference between the two passages that is in one and missing in the other? Anybody got it? Anybody see it? What is missing that shows you there's a difference between the one in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and the people group in Matthew chapter 19? They're both regenerated, but what is in one and missing in the other? No, 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 no. What is it? Yeah, Jimmy? Huh? Finish it out. Not just the Holy Ghost. What is it? The renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see that thing? When it talks to you and me, it talks about the renewing of the Holy Ghost inside you, what dwells in you. What? No, you not your bodies. The temple of the Holy Ghost was in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're about with a price. When it comes to Israel, Israel gets regenerated, but there's no renewing of the Holy Ghost. You know why? Never had the Holy Ghost like you and I have it. You've got to watch every word in your Bible. Every word in your Bible. Every word. Now let's look at some of these verses. Let's go right back to Romans and start there. I want to show you now how that this regeneration, the salvation of Israel, is not on an individual basis. It's a nation. You and I got saved in the kingdom of God. Our our regeneration is a spiritual regeneration that puts us into the body of Christ. Theirs is a spiritual regeneration that puts them into a nation. Watch. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Going back to where we stopped. And all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodly from Jacob, and I will take away their sin. Now is that how you got saved? Did you get saved with a, with a, with a Deliverer coming out of Zion that just turned away your ungodly? And notice it says, and all Israel, that's a nation, that's a nation. Well, if I remember right, we can through Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy God, a heart that God hath written in the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's a difference between those two verses. One of them's to you, one of them is to Israel. You notice it says, and all Israel shall be saved. You know, you don't read in the Bible, and all America shall be saved. You don't read in the Bible, and all Germany shall be saved. You don't read anywhere in the Bible, and all South America or all Russia shall be saved. We're dealing with a nation. We're dealing with a nation. Now, I'm going to run you through some Old Testament passages here, and I want you to see these, and, and mark these down, and you need to put them here and get them in there when you get your little concept going. The first one's in, not in the Old Testament, in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel. There it is again, see? Ye men of Israel. He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to them corporately as a nation. He's not saying, you guys here today. If I get up to preach to you, I'm not going to get up here and say, okay, all you people people, uh, in America, open up your Bible. You see, I'm talking to you as individuals. He's talking to them as a nation. He says, ye men of Israel. He's talking to a nation. Yes, there's individuals there, but their salvation is based on a national salvation. Why marvel at this? And why look so earnestly on us as though we uh, are by our own power or holiness, which we have made this man to walk? Peter comes down there and he lays it out for him and he says in verse 19, look what he says. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Talking to Israel. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart. Is that what it says? No, look at it. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, when? When the times of refreshing shall come, how? From the presence of the Lord. Nothing about the cross at all. Their salvation comes in at the second coming of Christ to a nation. If you're a Jew in the tribulation, then you start following God, you start getting back to the Messiah, you get taken care of, you crucified Him, and then you get into the nation doing what God tells you to do. If you're here this morning and you're lost without Christ, my my advice to you is to hear what I'm saying about salvation. Know that you're a sinner. Fall on your knees and ask Christ to come into your heart and save you and get part of a body of believers. One's a nation, one's a body. One's physical, one's spiritual. There are six messages preached in the first seven uh, chapters of Acts. Peter preaches five, Stephen preaches one. Look at them sometimes. There isn't one message in any of those six sermons that have any to do with individuals. They're all to a nation, a nation, the nation of Israel, telling a nation they got to get back with God. I mean, I may preach that America needs to come back to God, but you won't hear me get up and preach on a corporate thing that all America starts following God and you'll all be saved. You'll go to hell like a bullet. Your salvation comes apart for you and for me, in the church age, in the kingdom of God. By getting in a spiritual body. Theirs depends on getting into a physical nation. Now let's look at some of this. Look at, look, at, uh, look at Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20. Isaiah 59 20. And the Redeemer. Here it comes. Look at this. I mean it just you, you just once you isolate the verses I mean you can't you cannot help see it and the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgressions in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon me, and my words which I have put now do you see that thing? My spirit which is upon me. See that thing? My spirit which is upon me, upon thee. If you're saved, the Spirit of God is not upon you. If you're saved, the Spirit of God is in you, but them, it's upon them. See the difference? You've got to watch every word. I'll show you something else. Look at verse 20. And, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. When we get up there uh, in Romans 11, verse 26, the first thing I said, it said this. There shall come and deliver and shout uh, out of Zion. Now, what is the difference between coming out of Zion and from Zion, or in Zion? There's a difference between the two, and it all deals with the second coming of Christ. And this is exactly what you're dealing with. It. As for me, this is my covenant with them, back to Isaiah 59. My spirit that is upon me, and my words which I have put in my, uh, thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth uh, of thy seed, out of the mouth of thy seed seed, uh, saith the LORD from henceforth even forever. Alright, look at Isaiah forty-five seventeen, just a couple chapters back. Over and over again, but Israel, verse 17, Isaiah 45, 17, but Israel shall be saved in the LORD, with an everlasting salvation, and you shall not be ashamed, nor confounded a world without end. See that thing? It's Israel, a nation. A nation. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 7. For thus saith the LORD, sing with gladness for Jacob. Jacob's Israel, see? Remember when God changed His name to Israel? And then all through the Bible after that, He uses the word interchangeable. You know why? Because Jacob... Why did why did he change God's name? Uh, why did God change his name from Jacob to Israel? Somebody raise your hand and tell me why? Why Jacob? Why Jacob? Why Jacob? Why Jacob? Why? No. Why Jacob? Why did he change Jacob's name? What's so important about Jacob? Huh? No. Yeah, yeah, but no. What? From Jacob comes the twelve tribes, and from the twelve tribes comes Israel. So he changes his name to Israel. Because from Jacob is going to come the 12 physical tribes. He didn't have 12 boys that were spiritual boys. He had 12 literal boys who their seed, literal seed, became a nation. So he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Look what he said. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of nations. See that thing? Israel's the chief of the nations. You'll never find that in a reference to you and me. Christianity isn't the chief of any nation. We're in a body. Chief of nations, publish thee, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth and with them the blind and the lame, the women with child and her that travaileth with child together. A great company shall return thither and they shall come with weeping and with supplications. Will I lead them and I will cause them to walk by the water, rivers of the water in a straight way, wherein might they not stumble? For I am a father to Israel. Now, Christ is not the father to Christianity. But if you're saved this morning, He's your Father. I mean, He may be the Father of the Church, but the bottom side—you don't even find that phrase in the Bible. Find a Father of Spirits? You find a Father for you and for me. But the bottom line is, He is the Father to the nation of Israel. He's a Father individually to you. All right. Look at another one, Jeremiah, or excuse me, Psalms chapter sixty-nine, verse thirty-five. For the Lord will save Zion. That's Jerusalem. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. The Lord will, God will save Zion. You ever find in a place where the Bible says God will save Kansas City? Or God will save Madrid? Or God will save Dusseldorf? God doesn't save nations today. God doesn't save cities today. He saves individuals. But when He comes back, God will save Zion, see? And will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of His servants shall inherit it, and they shall love His name, shall dwell therein. Did you notice that the salvation had nothing to do with the seed of the servants? They just dwell there. God's salvation had to do with a literal city, Zion. Do you see that? I'll show you another one. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 6. Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities. And there isn't one individual in that passage. It's Judah and Israel. Of course, it's Judah and Israel because they are split at this point, north and south. Then, lastly, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. this is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. And these are all of the verses that show you that God is dealing with Israel and their salvation as a nation. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, tribulation, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, a nation, a nation, the house of Israel. Now here's how it basically works. We've seen all the verses now. We've laid out the concept. We've seen the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And this is why, very frankly, the first thing I taught you, the first thing when we started to take the Bible seriously, the first thing, if you remember, the first thing we drilled, and I drilled it and drilled it and drilled it and drilled it into you, was the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Here's how it works. You and me as a Christian, our kingdom is the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, and Luke chapter 17, verse 21 says it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not physical. When you and I got saved, got regenerated, got born again, got that spirit renewed in us, we got born into this spiritual kingdom uh, by the Holy Spirit of God as an individual. This This spiritual regeneration put you and me into a spiritual church and made you one with Christ. It not only gave you the regeneration of what Adam had, but Adam also had the Spirit of God, and he lost it, and you got that Spirit renewed in you. It's a spiritual relationship. It's a spiritual relationship called the Kingdom of God. Now, the nation of Israel, theirs is the Kingdom of Heaven. Theirs is a literal, visible, non-spiritual kingdom with a throne, with a literal king, with a literal temple that they make literal sacrifices in. On a literal piece of ground, where they have a literal relationship with God that forms their theocracy. Right now, as a nation, they're dead to God. And if they want to get saved, as I spoke earlier, they've got to become a Christian. But in the Old Testament, when God wanted to deal with them, He dealt with them as a nation. And in the Tribulation period, when God calls them back to establish them in the literal, visible kingdom, they'll have to come in as a nation. Right now, they're dead to God. But at the second coming of Christ, at the time of refreshing, they will be regenerated as a nation, not as individuals be part of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and part of the household of God. When God deals with you and me as the church, the kingdom of God, the spiritual as an individual, He puts you and me as an individual into the spiritual body called the church. But when God deals with a Jew in the Old Testament or the tribulation period, That Jew follows what God tells him. That Jew follows what God says. And at death, he gets put into the salvation of his nation. Not an individual. See how it works? It's just that simple. And somebody who gets up and says, Well, you know, salvation in the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament. Hey, there's no question grace and faith work through the whole thing. I ain't, there's no question about that. But it's the actual salvation that you have to see is different. And you try, to, you try to go any other way than the way I just gave you, and you're going to get as fouled up as you can get. And what you're going to wind up doing is getting them being born again in the Old Testament, just like you and I were. And it's the difference between seeing it as God lays it out and seeing it from the perspective of, of as a Christian and seeing that thing as it is. Where you and I go into a spiritual body at salvation, He goes into the Israel as a nation, a literal nation. Right now, God looks at that Jew. We've talked about this before. Right now, God looks at the Jew. That Jew has no salvation. That Jew has no sacrifice. That Jew has no temple. That Jew has no God. That Jew is about as far away from God as he could ever, ever, ever get. I don't know how that Jew today could get any farther from God. But here's the great key, and boy, what a great parallel for you and for me here. The Jews all caught up in money. They're all caught up in power. They're all caught up in politics. They're all caught up in putting their tradition over the Scriptures. And a couple of weeks ago, I showed you how that no Jew on this planet today ever hears the Bible. The rabbis have all of their interpretations of all the books of the Bible, and they lay it out that way, and they never hear the Scripture as God intended for them to hear it. They put, the, they put the tradition over the scriptures, and, and, and God looks at that Jew, and He sees them just as far away as they could ever be. And somebody says, why does God ever mess with them then? You know why? I'll tell you why. One of the greatest things you'll ever learn about God, and some God's people have a tough time with this. Most people have a tough time with this. But one of the greatest things you ever learn about God, God never forgets His promises. He never forgets his promises, and he looks at that Jew today, and that Jew's about as far from God and as, and as, 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 as terrible from God as they could ever be. But you know what God sees when He sees them? Now this is, a great, this is a great principle for you and for me. When he looks at that Jew, when he looks at that Jew, when he looks at that Jew and all of the mess that he is, you know what he sees? He doesn't see the mess. Oh, he does, but what he sees before he sees the mess is the promise He made to Abraham. Now let me just take that to you for just a second. If you're here this morning and you're lost without Christ, without hope, the only way God can have anything to do with an unsaved man, the only way God can do anything with an unsaved man, because the Bible says God is holy and is an unsaved person, we're not. And so the only way that God can ever even save you and me The only way that God can come down and do anything for you and me is when God looks at you and me when we were sinners. You know what He saw first? The blood of His Son on the cross. And just that God looks at Israel through the promise to Abraham, God looks at unsaved men and women through the blood of Christ. Now let me take it one step further. The great parallel between Israel and the church. Sometimes God's people get way out in left field, don't they? Sometimes we all get way out there where, where, uh, where you know, and, and we're far from God as Israel is today. I've seen over the years God's people to get in some of the most un- unbelievable circumstances that you could ever get into in your life. And, you know, and people say, well, if you know, you get that way, you die and go to hell. Because they believe you can lose your salvation. You know how I know you can't lose your salvation? Because Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life which God promised, which God who cannot lie, promise before the foundation of the world you realize there's a set of promises for me and you just like israel you know why i know God's not done with israel when they're in a mess they're in because way back there in genesis god made a promise through abraham and he said i'm gonna you may get out there and i, <laughs> I may have to whip you i may have to kill you i may have to beat you to pieces but i made some promise to you in the end i'm going to bring you back and you know why god when he looks at you and me way out in fellowship you know what god sees You know how I know you can't lose your salvation? Because just as God gave Israel some promises and they can't lose their salvation as a nation, God gave you and me some promises and we can't lose ours either. When God sees me and you way out in left field, when God sees me and you so far from Him, just like the nation of Israel, you know what God says? God says the promise that He made for His Son on Calvary's cross for you and for me. You know what God says? The same thing to Israel. I may whip you. I may beat you. I may kill you. I may get you home to heaven in a wheelchair and an iron lung, but I'm going to get you home to heaven because I promised you I would. And if our promise for God's salvation is no good in our life, then it ain't no good for Israel. There's promises in the Bible. Promises in the Bible. And right now as a nation, like I said, they're dead to God. God looks at them but all of the mess that they're in, and God says, I've got some promises. God looks at you and me with all the messes we get in, and God said, I promise my son. God keeps His promises. He remembers and calls them back. He saves them as a nation. A nation made up of individuals, yes, but who love Him and want Him as their Messiah, and so they're put into His nation. You and I were put into His body on their choosing Him as their Messiah. And when they go out and follow Him and what the Word of God says and the promises of the Old Testament, they get put into a nation, a literal, physical nation. You and I got put into a body, a spiritual body. It's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and everything in the Bible falls around it. Now look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 28, closing out here. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are the beloved of the Father's sake. The Bible tells you and I, as He comes down and ends this great chapter, that you and I are supposed to understand the nation of Israel. He tells you straight out that a Jew today is going to be an enemy of anybody who preaches the gospel. If you're a born-again believer today, the Jew is going to be your enemy, because he rejects the gospel, he rejects Christ, and he hates anything to do with it. And that's okay. And this is why He writes the things that He writes and takes such painstaking time to lay it out, and why I've taken so much time to lay it out, because we have to have the right perspective of Israel. And this perspective is simply this: Let them be your enemy, but make sure you are not their enemy. You have the understanding of the Word of God now and how God is dealing with them, and so you allow them to be what they are, knowing they're God's chosen people, and God is going to bring them back in His own time, and you help them however they can. I told you when we started our sermon today, the last hundred years, there's only two things that have been holding America together. One of them was the Word of God, and the other one was our nation of national policy with Israel. Well, we've dumped the Word of God, and the only thing we got left is the nation of Israel and our national policy. And let me just say something to you. If you can't see it, you'll see it very quickly. Just as America dumped the Bible, don't you ever think for a minute she's not going to dump the nation of Israel. A nation of Israel is going to go bye-bye, and I guarantee you, as I stand here before you on the authority of the Word of God, the na- this country is going to turn its back on the Jew and go against that Jew because of the political correctness and who we got running this country and all the people and the liberals that are in this thing, and they are going to take a stand against God's chosen people. And if you can't see it being set up right now, I hope to God you don't have to see it in your backyard. But it's coming. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. What does that mean? I've heard people say all the time, you know, well, that means that Israel doesn't have to say I'm sorry or make any kind of repentance. That's not what it's talking about. We studied a while back the the, the word repent. And the word repent primarily has to do with you changing direction. I'm not saying you shouldn't be you know, you shouldn't be sorry when you repent to God. Sorry for your sin. But repentance doesn't always mean sorry. If I, if, I, if I think to myself, I'm going to go up the steps and go to my car, and then I get to the bottom of the steps and I said, nah, I think I'm going to go out the long hallway and out the back. You know what I just did? I just repented from going up the steps. But you don't see me whining and crying down the hallway because I feel sorry for not taking the steps. The repentance repent means I went another direction. And when it says here in this great verse, and you want to get this note in for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, it simply means that God has not changed His direction or changed His plan in dealing with the nation of Israel. He's not repented. He's not going another direction. God started a plan for Israel all the way back in Genesis, and He's held true to that course all the way up through it. We talked about it at the beginning. We saw the formulation, Genesis chapter 1-12, through get you to Abraham. We saw them going into Egypt and then the calling out we saw God bring them in uh, Exodus chapter 12 when they go into the 40 years wandering and then they go into the land and they get established with David and Solomon. Then they have their demise when they go through the kings of Israel when the co- kingdoms get split. Then they go into the time of the Gentiles up through the church age and then into the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ and the restoration. That's God's plan and He's not chained for it. Now well, that's why I tell you this. You have got to get in your head You have got to get in your head of what is going on out there in this world is not going to get any better. It doesn't matter, Uh, and I'm just being honest with you. It doesn't matter. You know what? They're telling you your money ain't any good, so go buy gold. And so you go buy gold. And then you go to the place where, you know, the money dollars go down and the gold goes up. And you say, well, you know, and then they'll tell you, well, you know what, you need to do this, or you need to do that, or you need to put it all this way, or do it all this way. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what you need to do. Let me just simply tell you what you need to do. Forget the gold. Forget the money. It's all going to be worthless someday. And when the money isn't worth anything the gold is, the next day the gold won't be worth anything. When this, when this thing collapses, you know what? It's going to be keeping them, shooting them over the back fence of your yard, keeping them from coming in. I mean, you can have all the gold in the world, and all it does is it, it won't stop a bullet. And unless we're all going to live at Jan's house out there and man the perimeter and live together out there, they're going to get you sooner or later. I'm just telling you, you want to prepare, you want to get ready, you want to get ready for what's coming. And I, you know, and, I, you know, and I've not preached, I, I'm not a doomsday preacher. And this is not a doomsday message. And I'm not giving you a doomsday end of the sermon. I'm just saying, I'm as happy as can be. I mean, I, this is what it's supposed to be. I don't know why you're so down in the dumps and gloomy. What, do you want to live down here forever? Don't you know you've got to go through this to get where it's up there? Everybody else did in the history of the church. Why? Why are we special? I mean, the bottom line is: so you start a death in the street. When you get up to heaven, you can have everything you want to eat. You won't get any weight on top of it. <laughs> My point is this: you want to put your trust in something? Put it in the Lord Jesus Christ and get that relationship where it needs to be. Because at the end of the day, it isn't about how much money you got or how much gold you got or how much silver you got or how many this or that you got. It's going to be you and Him. And if I felt any urgency in my life and in my ministry and I don't know how long I don't know how long it's going to go. You realize that and it just drives me nuts. It just drives me nuts. Last week in Fort Hood, Texas, some Islamic guy went down there and killed, I don't know how many soldiers and walked in there and everybody's afraid to say it was terrorist. The guy is screaming with two guns in his hand, praise to Allah, or whatever he was saying, shooting American soldiers, and we're saying, now, we can't get too judgmental on this because we don't know that he was a terrorist. Now, (laughs) you know, come on. Hello? I'm not a conspiracy guy. I'm really not. And I'm just really not. I know the only one true conspiracy exists, and I know that one really well, so I don't really care. I can can track it, but I'm telling you this. It it just seems like there's somebody in this government somewhere that's just got everything, all the dials turned the wrong way. I mean, up is no longer up; it's down. Left is no longer left; it's now right. Right is wrong; wrong is right. We got to be politically correct because we know, hey, these what's it going to take? Is it going to take an atom bomb going off in Kansas City and 100,000 people killed before somebody, and then it'll be, oh, well, it was just, he didn't mean to push that button. He, He was just, he was in a physics class and it just kind of went off. Tell you what, my point is this, and I know it's funny, and I mean it to be funny, because if it wasn't, I'd be, if we didn't laugh about it, we'd be nuts, but I'm telling you this, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to Trust your government to protect you. I'm telling you that right now. They're not going to get your national guard and your army when push comes to shove, and they got to choose between protecting their families or your family. Where do you think they're going to go? I'm telling you right now, you better. Nobody's going to take care of you other than your relationship with God. And there may come a day that we can't be here anymore. There may come a day that we can't get here anymore. There may come a day when half of you are dead. There may come a day that I'm dead. There may come a day when you guys are on your own. And I'm telling you right now, mark my words. Get your head out of your rear end and understand that this thing is folding up. And you better just realize that the fun and games is over. I mean, it was fun, fun, fun. Daddy took the T-Bird away, man, and he's taking it. (laughs) What we're facing is coming down the line. And I'm, I, I, you know what, I've never, you guys have known me for 30, 40 years, some of you guys. Some of you older kids, I married you in here. When you, I remember your kids when they were born. You've never heard me talk like this. I am not somebody who likes to build fear into things and in what I'm saying. But I'm telling you on the authority of what the Word of God says and what's out there. You better get your relationship with God and keep it where it needs to be because this may be all you have. And you know what else? I said that. I feel bad even the way I said that. That may be all you have. That's all you need. That's all you need. But you see, because we have such easy lives, because we come to the point where we've had everything so easy in this country, even with our parents, you know, even with our own kids, We've not suffered any adversity. It's hard for us to even understand what it will be like in America when, it, when a flip switches. Switch, switch, flips. It'll be hard to even believe what's going on. You'll wake up to a world that you went to bed knowing it one way, and the next day it'll be another whole thing, and everything about it will change. You are losing every right you have, like blood running out of a man who cut both of his arteries in his wrist. We are bleeding to death as a nation with our freedoms and our rights. But you know what? You better get it in your head that real freedom is never based on what you have with the government. Your freedom is based on what you got in this book. The people in Romania and Russia and, and behind the Iron Curtain, they had—they they understand what I'm talking about. They knew what freedom was. Freedom had nothing to do being being... Under the communist rule, freedom—real freedom—has to do with this book in your life, and that's where we better get. Next week, we're going to start our third and final section, which I believe probably the greatest single section. It's the practical section, and it it talks about how you and I are to. We've we've seen everything now. We started in the beginning, and we saw how God dealt with the Gentiles, then He dealt with the Jews, then how that God brought His righteousness in. Then we saw the great doctrinal aspects of, of how salvation is now, and now we, 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 we come through the prophetic section in contrast to the doctrinal section, and now we're going to enter into the practical section. And the practical section is probably some of the greatest things you're, you're ever going to get. You know, in a, is your, in your, as your life in a Christian, and I don't know if you know this or not, your, your, life, is built around, your life is built around three things in the Bible. First thing is built around is built around commandments, now, we live in the New Testament. We don't think any commandments apply to us, but that's not true. There are commandments that apply to you and me in the New Testament church, and that's the first aspect. The second aspect were the promises. And God has gave you some promises that, uh, that you need to have in everything that you do as far as getting through life. And the third aspect would be the principles. And those are the hard-line things that you're going to learn uh, through the everyday understanding of just general life as a Christian. This is what the second, this is what the last chapter in Romans does. It shows you the practical side of things. It shows you that how you and I should develop the viewpoint of how we live our life on planet Earth, certainly in the days that we're living in. Almost chapter by chapter, it goes through every aspect and tells you and I what you and I should be looking at and thinking. It talks about our government. It talks about the other people that we're going to deal with. It talks about unsaved people. It talks about Christians. It talks about your employer. It talks about giving you the practical understanding of everything that you and I need to know to survive as a Christian. It, to me, it's one of the greatest chapters or greatest portions in all of the Bible. So that's where we'll be. Don't forget, we're going to be dismissed here in just a second. If you can uh, bring a thing of chili or whatever for the kids back there, uh, see Jamie, um, I'll see you Thursday night. Lord bless you. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed.